Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to be here this morning, so I hope you got a Bible with you and you can turn there to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 32. So we're walking and starting this series, started it last week, Who is Like Our God is the name of the series, and our brother Chris Kinsley kicked us off, dove all the way to the deep end and talked about the Trinity, God's triune nature as three in one, it was beautiful treatment of that vital truth, and so if you didn't get a chance to hear that, then I would encourage you, go find that online and listen to it from last week so that we can be in the flow all the way through this series. But Genesis 32 is where we're going to be. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It's always been fascinating to me because God gets in a fight in this text, and he's the one who starts it, which just seems like there's a rule that he's not supposed to do that, but he goes and does it. Anyway, he picks a fight in Genesis 32 with, with the patriarch. Jacob, that's intriguing to me because um, I've always been intrigued by fighting. Um, so I you know, watched boxers growing up. It was the heyday, at least as far as I was concerned. Hagler and Sugar Ray and Tyson, all these names were just household. Larry Holmes, right? And I just loved watching boxing matches as a kid. Uh, and then I got in my own fight. My very first fight was in third grade, and, uh, which was crazy because I didn't see the fight coming, but it came to me. I was standing up on the bus the end of the day, we're about to exit and deboard the, the bus there in front of Howard Keller Elementary School. And one second, I'm standing there about to deboard the bus, and the next minute, I'm in a full on fight with Richard Horner. And we would become great friends and graduate high school together, right? You know how it goes. But we, we fought that day. And if you were watching from the outside looking in, it would just seem like this fight came out of nowhere when, in fact, that fight had been brewing all day long. So here's what happened. Uh, it was 1984, and the reason I remember so keenly that it was 1984 is because the World's Fair came to New Orleans in 1984, and my third grade class took a field trip to go to the World's Fair. It was supposed to be the greatest day ever. The day at the World's Fair, it was a gondola, it was the works, right? And we were going to get to go spend the whole day at the World's Fair, and so we, we go there, we, we, you know, are walking around, there was a shop, and we we'll walk into the shop, and I see a a beautiful World's Fair hat. It was white and it had like light blue trim. It was really awesome looking. So I bought the hat, put the hat on. And that's when Richard decided his favorite thing to do that day was going to be to mess with my World's Fair hat. And he just starts knocking my World's Fair hat off. And then I would, he'd knock it off and he'd throw it over there. And then he'd knock it off and he'd put it in the top of the trash can. Then he'd knock it off and he'd step on it. And this is going on over and I'm doing all the things that kids are supposed to do, right? You avoid him, okay? I tried to avoid him and he wouldn't let that happen. Tell him. So I told him, stop taking my hat off. He didn't stop taking my hat off. I told the teacher, he's taking my hat off. Teacher said, stop taking his hat off. Well, you know, teacher-student ratio wasn't such that she could always keep her eye on Richard. So the moment she was looking the other way, he was taking my hat off and throwing it across the room. So now, back to Harold Keller Elementary School. We're standing in the school bus. We're about to deboard. And I, I am a seething cauldron of anger, right? And there I am standing up, and I, I, uh, I felt like if he takes my hat off one more time, that's going to be it. And matter of fact, I, I made the mistake of telling Damon Burns, who was standing next to me. And I said, Damon, if Richard takes my hat off one more time, I'm going to hit him. And Damon Burns then turns around and says, hey, Richard, Matt said, <laughs> if you take his hat off one more time, he's going to hit you. And now, look, I don't make the rules, but history is set at this point. 
Richard has to take the hat off. And then I have to hit Richard. And that's exactly how it went down. Richard took the hat off and I turned around and hit him in the stomach and we went at it. And look, nobody was hurt. We're third graders. So it's not like you know, we're th dropping bombs on each other or anything. Uh, it was just kind of a cat fight going on in the back end of the bus. But here's the thing. My actions all day clearly demonstrated that the last thing I wanted to do that day was fight Richard Horner until he took off my cap one more time. And when he took off my cap that one more time, it, it moved from being the last thing I wanted to do to the second to last thing that I wanted to do. The new last thing I wanted to do was live with Richard. Right, and the moment where that dawned on me, living with Richard was the unthinkable possibility, then the, the possibility of fighting Richard wasn't just likely, it was inevitable. And there's a sense in which that's kind of what's happening here in this fight that takes place in Genesis 32. Ja Jacob stands near the Jabbok River and he is a seething cauldron of emotions and pent-up feelings. He is deeply unsettled. We'll see why in a moment. But he is deeply unsettled and what he's trying to avoid is a fight with Esau and he ends up in a fight with God. And it changes his life. So Genesis 32, if you'd follow along, I'll start reading in verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. He said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today, so this is in the time of Moses, 500 years later, so this is a narrative statement. That is why still today, all these years later, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. In other words, there are there are parts of meat that we still don't eat 500 years later because of the whooping Jacob got by the Jabbok River 500 years ago. It was a fight that left a mark, not only on Jacob because he limped for the rest of his life, but it left a mark on the entire history of God's people. But ultimately, you back out, you zoom out, and it's not a story about a fight. It's a story about the faithfulness of God. It's a story about the tenacious, severe mercies of God to bring us out of our darkest moments, right? When we're at our worst, God is tenacious and he brings severe mercy to bear in our lives. It's a story about, about desperate faith that clings to God even when it hurts. It's a story about a victory that comes not by our strength but in the midst of our weakness. 
And I think we're not going to really grasp the significance and relevance of this passage for our lives if we don't have some backstory and don't grasp the circumstances behind it. So if you're taking notes, their backstory, point number one is this, living a lie and running from the reckoning. Living a lie and running from the reckoning. That seems to be what's happening as we come into Genesis chapter 32. As we come into our text, it seems as if Jacob's past was catching up. So rather than just assume everybody here is familiar with the Jacob story, it is really important for us to be on the same page and understand who Jacob was. He's one of the most important characters in the entire Old Testament. God would name himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and this guy, right? So he's he's a very pivotal character in biblical history. His name would be changed to Israel in this passage, a significant turning point. And then Israel's going to have 12 sons who are going to be known as the 12 sons or tribes of Israel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah in the fullness of time, is going to come through the line of Jacob, which means that the road of redemption that runs from creation to the cross, to the empty tomb, and to the new heavens and the new earth, that road on this night in Genesis 32 runs right along the Jabbok River. So there's deep significance in what's happening in this text, right? Think about his life story with me for just a moment. This might be familiar to many of us, but but here's the deal. The Lord had set his kindness on Jacob before Jacob was even born. It's similar in some ways to what we studied in Jeremiah chapter one, where God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I chose you and I appointed you to serve in this way. And in a similar way, God had decided in advance before Jacob was born, he decided he was going to set his blessing and that his blessing would come to Jacob and run through Jacob all the way to the ends of the earth. He was going to be that person, right? Matter of fact, God says when Jacob was still in the womb with his twin brother Esau and God comes alongside to Rebekah, his mother, and God says to Rebekah, so we're going to change everything. The normal way is that the blessing, the patriarchal blessing, moves to the firstborn in every house in Israel. Not this time. The older will serve the younger. This is just my purpose, I'm changing the script. I'm going to do something different. The older, Esau, is going to serve the younger, Jacob. And that's how it played out. The boys were born. Genesis chapter 25 records the story this way. When her time came to give birth, There were indeed twins in her womb, and the first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Jacob meaning one who grasps the heel. So literally, Jacob is making a power grab on his way out of the womb. And so it's almost like maybe they were just playfully naming him. They're like, oh, look, he's grabbing the heel. Oh, let's name him Jacob, the one who grabs the heel. It might have been playful for them, but it was actually prophetic. For the whole man's life was going to be shaped by that kind of power grab is is a great name for him. Because you move forward and what happens? He tricks his brother Esau, right? He He is smooth with his words and he tricks his brother Esau into selling the birthright to him, right? And then you fast forward. And, and their, their dad, Isaac, is, is aging, and he's at the end of his life, and he says, I don't know how many years I have left, and he's blind, so he, right? So he can't see, and he says, um, he says, Esau, to his oldest son, 
He says, Esau, go, go and hunt the wild game and make me that favorite soup that you make me with the wild game that you've hunted. And, and I want you to come back to me with the wild game and with the soup and I'll eat it and then I will confer upon you the patriarchal blessing before I die. And so Esau runs out into the woods with his bow and arrow and he's going to hunt for a while. And meanwhile, Jacob, with help from his mom, so this is a complicated family, Jacob, with help from his mom, comes up with a plan. And she says, I know how to make the meal that Esau is going to try to make for your dad. And we will trick your dad and deceive your dad into conferring the patriarchal blessing on you. He's about to give the blessing to the wrong son. And we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And Jacob says, well, my arms aren't as hairy as Esau's. And she says, we'll take care of that too. And he's like, I don't smell like Esau. She's like, we'll take care of that too. She's got a plan here. And here's how it plays out. Genesis 27, it'll be on the screen. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, my father. And he answered him, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob replied to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. And even in that moment, his dad is suspicious. He, he even he feels his arms and he says, they're the, they're the arms of Esau, but it is the voice of Jacob. And Jacob has to do some massaging to work through that situation, but eventually Isaac gives in and believes him and he confers the patriarchal blessing. Here's the thing, the irony is Jacob is crafty and he is scheming and he is deceiving to get a blessing that God promised to give him in the first place by grace. But he feels, I'm gonna go out and get it myself. I'm gonna make sure it doesn't fall in the wrong hands, right? Christians still do this, don't we? Especially when it comes to ambition, personal ambition, the drive for greatness, the drive for power, the drive for prestige. We make an idol of blessing and we go and get it. I'm going to get mine. I don't know who else is going to get theirs, but I promise you, I'm going to get mine. That's how Christians have often lived. How the church sometimes is even defined. In a sense, what happened in the 16th century Protestant Reformation is God had a river of Jabbok moment with the church and he pulled up and he knocked the world's fair cap off and he said, let's do this, right? There was a sense in which he was picking a fight with the church itself. Why? Because the church had become a shell of what it was meant to be in the first place. It had, it had come alongside and cozied up with emperors and royal powers and it had filled its treasuries with the money of the poor people. And how did it get the money of the poor people? It told them, you can get your loved ones out of the fires of purgatory if you'll give to the church. As soon as a, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, and in comes the money. And the church became deeply rich, and Martin Luther was there to blow the whistle. And he said, you know what's happening here? I'll tell you what's happening here is the church has exchanged a theology of the cross for a theology of glory. What everybody wants is wealth and power. How did we become this? It was a prophetic moment. You think about our life and our times even as Christians, and what our temptations are. Who wants a Christian faith that majors on waiting and trusting when you can just go and get the blessing now? 
Just be creative, be driven, and go and get yours. Who wants to believe God's word is our wisdom and God's word is our truth and our authority when we can define truth for ourselves? Let's just define it. I'll just call this my truth, and you can call this your truth. Who wants God's authoritative truth when you can just have it your own way and define the terms by yourself? So back to the story. Jacob, he's heading home. Now, I don't have time to go into the whole thing that happened here where after he tricks his brother and his dad, well, in that moment, the patriarchal blessing is conferred upon him, and here comes Esau with the game and the soup, right? And now the ruse is up, but it's too late. He can't undo the patriarchal blessing. It has already been conferred, and now Esau is seething angry, and he whispers, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to wait for the right time, but I'm going to kill my brother. And the mom hears it, and she says, he's going to kill you. You need to hit the road. And so he goes into exile, and we're not going to see him for another 20 years. And he goes into exile with his uncle Laban, and his uncle Laban out Jacob's Jacob. He outswindles the swindler. And then Jacob figures out a way to outswindle the one who swindled him. So it's kind of 20 years of swindling one another. Jacob ends up leaving Laban, and he leaves Laban with both of his daughters as his wives, and he leaves with a lot of Laban's cattle. He even figured out a way to rig the mating system so that he could walk with a lot of Laban's wealth. And so now his uncle slash father-in-law hates his guts as Jacob leaves. And now Jacob has one place to go, and he's going to go home. And guess who's waiting with open arms? Esau. Can't wait for you to get home, my long-lost brother. Right? And you look at the beginning of chapter 32, and you find out Jacob kind of, he's trying to soften He's trying to soften him up on the way in, and he's saying, hey, check out, just find out how Esau is with me kind of coming back to town, right? And he finds out, the the people come back in verse 6, you see verse 6 in chapter 32, and it says, oh, yeah, he's super eager for you to come back, and he's got 400, 400 friends who are also eager for you to come back. And then you see what's his response in verse 7. Jacob is greatly afraid. And distressed. So that's why I said that there was this cauldron of emotion as he's standing by the river Jabbok, because that's what's coming for him. It would seem in that moment that Jacob's past had finally caught up when, in reality, Jacob's God was closing in. It wasn't so much that Jacob's past was catching up, it was that Jacob's God was closing in. And here's where we move from backstory, where Jacob is living a lie and running from a reckoning to new story, a breaking, a naming, and a new way of walking. A breaking, a naming, and a new way of walking. Kind of like my time on the bus where, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and everything is fine and it's 3.01 and there's a fight that broke out in a similar way that our text sort of reports it. In verse 24, you start reading verse 24, and everything is calm and having a quiet evening by the Jabbok River. All you hear is the kind of the streams of the Jabbok in the background. By the time you get to the end of verse 24, there's a fight, and it's been going on all night long. All right, so there's heaving, there's maneuvering, there's foot, footfall and scuffling going on, right? His, and his opponent isn't Esau, his opponent is God. Again, verse 28, so though the text will sometimes use the word man, verse 28 is you have struggled with God. And then later on, Jacob's going to say, I'm going to name this place Peniel because I saw God tonight right here. And that's the name this place is going to live by from now on. 
I think he comes to this moment of realization, perhaps the moment, the Hebrew word is that he touches his hip and it breaks. He, he touches the hip and it's de- dislocated. And it's not just a temporary injury. He's going to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. This is a lifelong injury that just happens because the angel of God, in this case God himself, touches the man's hip and it just explodes. And what happens there? The angel then says, it's a fascinating exchanges here. The angel says, let me go. It's daybreak. We fought long enough. And what does Jacob say? No. Not until you bless me. And in one sense, you could kind of think cynically, there goes Jacob again. His name is grasping for power, and now he's got God, so he's going to get the power of God. Is Jacob back up to his old ways again? But no, this passage and this statement from Jacob is viewed positively in this passage and in the rest of scripture. It's viewed as a turning point in Jacob's life, an aha moment. He is now awake. This is a passage that's gonna gesture in the direction of what it looks like to be faithful, to look away to the God who is strong in the midst of our weakness. So Jacob names this place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. So probably when the angel breaks his hip, Jacob realizes whose grip he's in. Which is why I think the dynamic that's at play here is that when Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me, I think what's going on there is Jacob is saying, in essence, I have clawed all my life for superficial blessing. And here tonight, I'm in the grip of God himself and he's in my grip and I'm not gonna let go if it kills me. I'm gonna get real blessing tonight. I'm gonna get something that lasts and I'm gonna get it tonight. Maybe the transformation that's going on is this awakening to the fact that Jacob's woes aren't owing to the fact that he was the younger brother. His woes aren't owing to the fact that Laban did him a raw deal for 20 years. Jacob's biggest problem is I'm still Jacob. I grasp for power, it's, it's my name, it's what, it's what I do. And there's a sense in which all of his life, the last thing he wanted was discomfort. And the new last thing, the new unthinkable situation is escaping God's grip tonight without being changed. And I think that's why God comes to the River Jabbok ready to pick a fight. Is God is coming to change the patriarch Jacob and he's gonna turn the redemptive story in this glorious direction. It's no coincidence of what happens in the text. You see verse 26? I won't let you go until you bless me. And what does God say in verse 27? What's your name? Which seems like it doesn't really follow. What does this have to do with that? Well, there's a lot that goes into biblical naming, and there's a lot that goes into questions that are asked by God. So God often asks uncomfortable questions. You just think about that. The Samaritan woman, where's your husband? Go get your husband. All right, that's, a, that's an uncomfortable question that Jesus is asking. Or the rich young ruler, have you tried keeping the law? The conversation is going to go in a very awkward direction because the next thing he's going to do is, okay, what about that one about covetousness? What about that one about clinging to your riches? And he's going to let the man walk. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Second time. Yes. 
do you love me? Lord, you know. And Simon Peter realized the third time he asked, he's like, you're doing these one for every one of my denials. Yeah, it's, it's a probing question. And then here in our text, Jacob, what is your name? Well, how is that a burning question? How is that a barbed question? Remember the last time Jacob was asked, what's your name? His blind father is feeling the hair on his arms and saying it's the, it's the arms of Esau and it's the voice of Jacob. Who am I holding? And what did Jacob say to his dad? Esau is my name. I'm your oldest son. That's my game you're eating. I'm Esau. And so God brings him right around, comes full circle, and God has him in his grip and his hip is broken and he says, tell me your name. And maybe for the very first time in Jacob's life, he tells the truth. And it's his name and it's a confession simultaneously. I'm Jacob. I grasp for power. It's my whole life has been this. This is what I do. This is who I am. And you even hear an echo of the gospel in the very next verse. In verse 28, God responds and he says, not anymore your name isn't Jacob anymore. No longer will your name be Jacob. It will be Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel is his new name. You know what Israel means? God fights. Israel, God fights. <laughs> That's your new identity, Jacob. What's this have to do with us? A few things to think about. Pride is our greatest enemy, and God fights against it for our good. Pride is our greatest enemy, and God fights against it for our good. John Stott, the late theologian and pastor, well said this years ago. He said, if we would grow in grace, pride must be our greatest enemy, and humility our dearest friend. Humility is the virtue that births a thousand virtues. It was Martin Luther who said that God's grace is like water. It runs to the low place. So when we find ourselves at that low place, you know, you remember the way that God says, which God do you want to encounter? Because I'm a God who opposes the proud and I'm a God who gives grace to the humble. You come in humble, it's Christmas. My, my blessing flows. And so that's why even at the outset of our salvation, the gift of repentance is a gift of humility. It's a gift that makes us realize that I was wrong and you were right. I was clinging to idols, and you're the one true God. I'm let going of this, and I'm running to you. Pride is our greatest enemy, and God fights against it for our good. So how do we cultivate humility? We cultivate humility by looking at God, not by looking at humility itself. We cultivate humility by looking at God, seeing the contrast between who he is and who we are. His glory resizes us. That's why we sing the way that we do, these songs that are centered on the glory and character and power and grace of who God is. We're going to sing at the end of this gathering, Be Thou My Vision. That's the oldest hymn that's been translated into the English language. So for 1,300 years since the 8th century, the church has been saying, we get more humble when we see how glorious he is. So you, be our vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. This God-centered vision creates humility in our lives, humility in the church. You know what else creates humility? Service. Serving others in Christ's name. It moves us away from our entitlement, from our self-centeredness that we live for ourselves. I want us to hear this too. 
even when you fall, God isn't finished. Even when you fall, God isn't finished. You know, every week there's at least one sentence in the sermon that I wish I could say to every person one at a time. And this is that sentence this morning. I wish I could sit across from you and say to each person in this room, even when you fall, God isn't finished. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. God's work isn't done. He's a God of tender mercies and severe mercies. He has, he has ways of bringing us to himself. You follow the road of redemption that runs through the Old Testament and it winds its way to the Jabbok River and then it moves through the patriarchal period into the Exodus, into the conquest and the judges and the kingdom and the divided kingdom and the exile and the return from exile and into the period of silence that represents that blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years, not a peep out of heaven. And then there's a peep out of heaven and it's the angels singing over the hills of Bethlehem. Unto us a child is born and there he he stands the savior of the world and he comes from the line of Jacob and what's he going to do? He's going to fight our battles. God fights. He's going to fight on the cross against our greatest enemies, the ones who are way too strong for us, sin and shame and guilt and hell and Satan and he fights against them and he buries our guilt and he buries our shame and he buys us back for God and then he says, who wants a new name? He gives new names. In the waters of baptism we are given a new name. No longer are you Jacob. No longer are you what you thought you were a moment ago. That's a well-worn statement. I don't know to whom to attribute it from church history. And it goes basically like this, that, that Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. What is your name? Your name is you belong to me. That's, that's your name. It's the name you got, not when you went to the Jabbok, but when you went to the Jordan, when you went down into the waters of baptism and you got yourself a new name. And that's your identity. That's who you are now. So there was a breaking and there was a naming and now there's a new way of walking. It's not just Old Testament. That's, that's our own lives. The walk of faith is not a strut. It's a limp. We limp for the rest of our lives. Repentance makes us walk with a hitch in our step for the rest of our lives. I heard an interview this week with a Christian author named Chad Bird, and he writes a lot about the way of God in the midst of weakness. And he was asked this question, what are you learning about life and following Jesus? And I love the way he framed his response. It's such a fresh way of wording it. He said, I'm learning that failures and wounds and scars have been the greatest blessings in my life. For through them, Christ has made me weak that he might be strong, made me dead that he might be alive in me. Following Jesus means I must die only dead people are ready to begin discipleship. He's daily Good Fridaying me, my ambitions, my navel-gazing ways that he might Easter me. Friend, even when you fall, God isn't finished. Christian friend, if you fall into sin and you want to stay there, so hear that language. If you fall into sin and you want to stay there, God will wrestle you for your ultimate healing. Let's be clear, God isn't here to, to cross his arms, to fold his arms and, and scold you this morning for your failures. But he might be here to pick a fight. Maybe this, maybe this morning is your Jabbok River moment. Maybe God's gonna knock your world's fear cap off and say, let's do this. You wanna still be you forever? Or you wanna be new? You wanna be changed? You want a new name? Let's do this. Here, now. I pray this is a Jabbok moment 
Look, let's just call that water that's boiling. Let's just call that Jabok for, for now. If this was the morning where you encountered God, you found yourself in his grip, and you didn't let him go without the blessing. Friend, repent and believe. Run to Jesus, the one hope of the world. Get yourself a new name before we're done here. I'm out of time. Quickly, one more. If you fall into sin, but you don't want to stay there, you'll gravitate toward Christians who walk with a limp. Isn't that true? Now, there are some people in your life whose walk is so noticeable that in a dimly lit room, just seeing their silhouette, you know who it is because of their, their gait. They have a way of walking, and you're like, okay, that's so-and-so. I know who just, who just walked over there, right? For, for Jacob, he walks with this limp. It was a recognizable gait for the rest of his life. Here's something that I hope is true. I hope this is increasingly true for us. This is an aspirational statement. But here it is. For any tired and broken sinners who want to fall into the arms of Christ, Brook Hills is your place. I hope that that is increasingly true. That as a church, we have a collective gait and we limp. We walk with a hitch in our step. We know we're broken. We know we don't have it all together. We're not paper saints. We're not impressed with ourselves. We know who the hero of the story is. It's Jesus. We know our identity. We are loved by God. We are the agape toy. We are the ones who are loved by God. That's one of the New Testament's favorite words to identify what a Christian is, an agape toy, a one who has been loved by God. And as those who have been loved by God, what do we do together? Every time we gather, what we do together in a sense is we open our bruised hands to receive the blessing. I hope that's every Sunday. Under the ministry of the gospel, we open our bruised hands to receive the blessing. We are, we are throwing away Jacob's ways. We are throwing away our schemes. We are walking out in the light, and we are waiting for him to be faithful to the promise. And we know what our name is. We know what it was, and we know what it is. It used to be Jacob because we grasp for power. And now it's Israel because God fights. God fights to make us new.